Anthony Ruffin, and um, I work for the Department of Mental Health, and I work with our home teams and our HST teams. And um, I've been with the Department of Mental Health for about 10 months now, but prior to that, um, I've worked on the streets of Santa Monica, Hollywood, Pasadena, Skid Row, some parts of the Valley, some parts of Pomona, and basically all around the county. And I've been doing this type of work for like 12 years, about 12 years. And um, part of my history is um, I started doing this work when this work kind of didn't exist too much. And um, it was working with the most vulnerable people on the streets of Los Angeles. And at that time, all I would get was a picture of a person in a corner they may be at. And I would usually would get these referrals from city organizers, other outreach teams, and first responders. And um, they would just give me a picture and I would write out. And I started engaging these very, very difficult people. And we all seen them throughout the county or in the spots we're in. They're sitting on a bus bench, been sitting there five, 10, 15 years. Or they psychotic running up and down the streets. Um, most of the time they failed in FSP programs. They failed in camp programs. They failed with regular case management programs. They failed the system completely. And most of them have been under conservatorship before or walked away from boarding cares and just acute substance abuse, mental health issues, and physical disabilities. Um, so I can just tell you a little bit about that and how that started for me. It was in Santa Monica, and um, they had 20 people in Santa Monica. And um, I think it was the first time in scattered site housing that we had a psychiatrist and a doctor, social worker, and an LCSW with us in Santa Monica. And I think we housed 20 of those individuals, and we probably helped another 30 people on the streets. And what we found is, in the study, is that all of them passed away. All of them passed away. I've been on SIF programs, I've been on FUSE programs, going into hospitals and stuff like that, with the top 20 in the hospitals and all this other stuff. And all of those people passed away also. So what I realized a long time ago is sometimes we are the last case managers they may have, right? Because they're super vulnerable, super sick, and super acute. And um, right now, I'm currently working, let me back up. So I came to the Department of Mental Health because of some work I'd done in Hollywood with Hollywood's top 14. So they scoured Hollywood, they found they had 350 people homeless on the streets of Skid Row, and they housed some of these individuals but they realized that there was 14 individuals that were on the streets, lingering on the streets for decades and nobody could reach these people. So um, they sent me in to work with these 14 people. And um, with working with these people or working with people in the past is what I found out is the mental health system and how it works and how it doesn't work for these individuals. What does housing look like for these individuals? What it doesn't look like for these individuals? And I had, the opportunity to follow these individuals through all the systems. May it be psych wards, may it be boarding cares, may it be jail, whatever it may be, because they hit all of these systems. And I got pretty good at finding the gaps in the system. And I honed my skills 
from just repeatedly doing the work and redoing the work and redoing the work. And um, what I found out throughout the whole county working with these individuals, most of them have a lot in common. Most of them have a lot in common. I don't care if it's Skid Row. I don't care if it's the Valley. I don't care if it's Hollywood. I don't care if it's Santa Monica. I don't care. They don't trust us. They're very paranoid of us. And they give us a little information. And it's up to us to decipher that information. Right? And what, I, what I've learned is to pay attention to signs. So the first thing I do is I evaluate the community that they're living in. I ask myself one question, why here? Why did this person pick this bus stop here? That's the first thing I ask myself, right? Before I even engage the person, I look at the surroundings they're in. Is there a gas station? Is there a liquor store? Is there a spot where they can go get food? What is it about here where they can access resources? What is it? Right? So I go about and I look at all these places and I start talking to people in these places because I'm doing the outreach already. I don't even need the person. I'm doing the outreach already. Right? And then I kind of kick back and I just kind of watch that person and I watch who they're interacting with. So I'm looking for their social connections. Their social connections. Everybody has a social connection. Somebody's keeping somebody alive. Who is it? That's what I need to know first and foremost, right? And then as I'm paying attention to the individual, I'm looking at things. Is there stuff scattered in the street? Is it folded neatly? Right? I'm looking at all of these signs, all of these signs, because their stuff is folded neatly. If their stuff is folded neatly, that means they care about their stuff. So what I'm thinking about is housing also. Do they care about their stuff? Right? So I get as much information about this person as I possibly can. And when I engage, I'm always assessing. I'm looking at their feet. I'm looking at their legs. I'm listening to where they talk. And I'm also assessing how close can I get to this person. I'll start here. Hi, my name is Anthony. <coughs> and I start walking up slowly. If they back up, I stop. It lets me know how much trust they got. And I'll start there. Sometimes they may talk to me. Sometimes they may say, get away. That's fine. I take that as engagement. May it be negative or may it be positive. They said something to me. All depends on how you look at it. All depends on your perspective. I've had clients cuss me out, spit at me, everything else, and they're housed today. And what I do is continue to come back, and I remember that step where I was at. Get a little bit closer. Just came by to say hi. Get away from me. Fine. Because I know it's a process. It's a process. And what I do a lot of times is, once I find out who that social connection person is, I'll outreach them. I will outreach them to do that handoff for me 
introduced me to that person. Right? And what I do is when I talk to people, I hear a lot of times people say, we got resources. And they really don't explain what those resources are. So the client doesn't know what you mean by resources unless you spell those resources out clearly in layman terms. And sometimes the client will just ramble and ramble and ramble and ramble. And that's a good sign for me because in that rambling, it is some truth in that. Even if it isn't, it's their truth. Not my truth, it's their truth. And I get to asking questions, why, when, where, how. <coughs> Open-ended questions. The longer I can keep them talking, the better it is for me. And then what I usually say to them is, that was really, really interesting. You gave me a lot to think about. Let me think about that and I'll get back to you. And they usually say, okay. I'll wait a few days and go back to them and say, remember that question you asked me about? Can you explain that a little bit more to me? And I usually sit down. The engagement process has started. I'm not mentioning services. I'm not talking about no mental health. I'm not talking about no housing. I'm not talking about any of that. Any of that. And then usually what happens is the client says, what do you do? And my first question is, what would you like me to do? Because what happens is now we're talking about trust. If they ask me to do something, can't I do it? Can I do it? And I take that as a challenge. I've always had for the last 10 years. And whatever that is they want me to do, I make sure I do it. Even if I say, give me a couple of days. Or sometimes I'll back up off of them and say, I can do that for you right now. And get on the phone and make the phone call right then and there. Boom. So I'm trying to build trust with that person. First and foremost. I don't care what it is they want me to do for them. Because they're talking about their immediate need, not mine. If that makes sense. Right? And then a relationship builds and a relationship builds, and I'm always assessing, I'm always assessing, I'm always assessing, and I'm always assessing. Always. And that's how I usually engage very difficult people. Sometimes, I can say like Skid Row, for instance. I use Skid Row, for instance. So Skid Row pilot project for home started off on Skid Row when I was working for C3. So we started looking at Skid Row, and I mean by looking at the environment. When we walk down 6th Street, which way does the sun set? What side is the shade? What side is the sun? 
who can't get out the sun and make it over to the shade? I'm more interested in those people. Right? It's about 10 trees on Skid Row. That's prime property. Right? So we talk about understanding the environment in which you work in. And then you have, a, have to have a deep understanding of the subculture within that environment. Because we all know there's long sharks there. All the tents there are not for homeless people. We kind of know this if you're doing your homework in the environment that you're working in. Right? We know that outreach looks different from the 1st to the 13th than what it looks like in the middle of the month. In the end of the month, what I try to tell my staff is, let's not set up any appointments with nobody first of the month. Why do that? Why set the client up? Why set them up? Why set yourself up? So first of the 13th, what we try to do on Skid Row is, we try to work with the people that are not involved in the drugs. They stick out like sore thumbs. They're not involved in the drugs and they're just kind of sitting over there by themselves. We know that they're severely mentally ill. No substance abuse. Right? And then we have our clients that acute substance abuse. What we do is support them through that. We still outreach them, we still talk to them. And we kind of just say, be safe. Be safe. We'll see you later on. It's okay, because we want our clients to feel safe with us. They can be honest with us. They don't have to hide anything from us, right? And then in the middle of the month, that's when we do most of our work. Everybody's fresh out of money. Everybody comes back. They're off their drugs. They're cute. Everything else, they're cute, but they're seeking help. That's when we move our clients one step closer. And we know we're only going to get a step or two. Oh, yeah, I can remember the one client that was real difficult that uh, you worked with and that you shared with the, the gentleman at the church in Hollywood. Was it with the wheelchair? Yes. And he was one that um, you had to approach different. Yes. He had huge trust issues. Yes. She, she's talking about a client named Very hard to engage. And I, excuse my language, but the first time I met him, he said, fuck you. So I thought to myself, I really don't need you. I really don't need you. So I outreached everything around him. Everything around him, his nurse, everything else around him. So everywhere he went, it came back to me. And that's how I built that relationship with him. And when he got his leg, other second leg amputated, I was there when he got his other leg amputated at the hospital. And he was still defiant, still didn't want no help, and still refused housing. <coughs> so I just built up the community around him and let the community and his friends put pressure on him. I let all of his friends put pressure on him. And it took about a year and a half, but he's housed now. He's housed now. 
And the one thing that he wanted in housing, he wanted his own IHP worker. He wanted a formerly homeless person to be his IHP worker. What's the bigger harm? Leaving him on the streets or giving him his own IHP worker? I gave him his own IHP worker. He's in house now. And he still had the same IHP worker. And they still smoke weed together. And they still drink together. <laughs> and they do, do everything together. But he's housed. But he's housed. Right? Right? So sometimes we just got to give people what they want. And sometimes we can't be afraid to say, what is it that you want? We all have policies within our organizations. We all have rules within our organizations. But you can ask a person, what is it that you want? And if you don't have the resource, find a resource. Because these individuals that we work with, like I said, they die on the streets. I think last year, 900 people died on the streets. 900 people died on the streets of Los Angeles. That's too many people. I hear 63,000 homeless, maybe 12,000 severely mentally ill. What are we going to do about these numbers? Can we work on the 900? Can we get that number to go down? And as outreach workers, FSP workers, everything else, we get these type of clients. We get them. Regular outreach teams can't deal with them. Other programs don't have the resources to deal with them. Social services as a whole doesn't have nothing built for them. And it's our job to push the system just a little bit more for each client that we work with to push this system that's supposed to be working for them, work for them. Now some people may say I'm a case manager, I'm an LCSW, I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that. We're all advocates. First and foremost, we're advocates. First and foremost. And if you're not advocating for your client, you're not doing your job. If you're advocating for the agency that you're working for, and it's not helping your client, you're not doing your job. I've housed so many people because it's been a fight. It was a fight. It was a fight to put somebody in my car that had feces on them and take them to GR, and GR didn't want them in a building. I had to be his voice and say, no, you're going to let him in the building because he's a human being right. and he deserves your services. That's why you're here, DPSS. That's it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know? So he got his GR. I got him clothes. He wanted to panhandle every day. So I picked him up every day from the motel room he was staying in, dropped him off on the corner by the freeway, went to work, and after I got off work, picked him up and took him back to the motel. 
That's what I did because he called that his job. That was his job. Who am I to deny him his job? I housed him. He stayed housed for five years. He lived in um, Michigan. His family's from Michigan. I was going to a conference in Michigan. The organization was paying for it. And I told the organization, well, guess I'm not going unless he go. Because <laughs> he was having a granddaughter. So the agency paid for him to go to, and he got to see his granddaughter. Right? When he died, probably about eight months ago, his son called me. His son said, can you tell me a little bit about my father? Because I really didn't know him. Right? So if we're doing this type of work, that's what we really get paid for. We get to bring closure to families. We get to tell families about their loved ones. The families know that we advocated for their loved ones. And we just didn't get a check and advocate for the agencies that we work for. Right? Right? So, so that's what I'm about. That's what I'm really, really about. And today, I'm dressed up a little bit, but usually I have on pants that's old, shoes that's old, jeans that's old. And I'm going to tell you a remarkable story. Department of Mental Health said I'm a director. <laughs> You're a director. Oh, is that right? No, I'm an advocate. I don't let this get me caught up off my mission. It ain't about this. I didn't get into this for this. Not me. Not me. Hi, sisterhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so, so yeah, so that, that's, that's what I'm about. And one of the stories that really, really touched me, that really, really got me focused in on this work When I was in Santa Monica, it was a client named on the streets of Santa Monica for like 25 years. And I used to ride my bicycle up to him all the time. Get away from me. Get away from me. And one day he said, man, can you get me into a shelter? Got him into the shelter. Took him to his medical appointment. He had throat cancer. I met with him on a Wednesday at front of the Access Center. We're sitting on the curb smoking a cigarette because he still smoked. We were smoking a cigarette together. And he said, man, I never thought my angel would come to me in the form of a black man. <laughs> right? He's like, okay, whatever. Took him to his medical appointment on a Friday. He was on a bus bench. I said, see you Monday. He said he's catching a bus back to the shelter. He died on a bus bench. Over the course of a couple of months, I said, can you save some money? Can you save some money? Can you save some money? He would buy a pack of cigarettes, a lottery ticket. That's all he would buy. So when he died, I found out that he was taking the rest of his Social Security money, sending it to his daughter out of state so she can go to college. 
That story right there brought the human aspect to this work to me. You never know why somebody is homeless. You never know why somebody's not going into money management. You just never know. And you probably will never know. Because there may be something that's going on with them that they don't want to tell you about. So, so, so can, I say, can I say this? I believe all FSP teams are phenomenal. They're phenomenal. FSP teams and outreach teams are phenomenal in their own way. Because when it's pouring down raining, we out there. When it's 105 degrees, we out there. We not sitting in the air conditioning talking about, hey, it's a little too cold today. I'm not going out there. I haven't met a team that's done that yet. When it's 102 degrees out there, teams are out there. Don't nobody else. Supervisors are not out there. Any supervisors here? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I'll speak on behalf of Tasha. Yeah. So, yeah. So, for the most part, yeah. So, all the teams are phenomenal. But... I think our biggest, biggest frustration and what burnout is, burnout is frustration. Burnout is frustration. Burnout is when there's not enough resources and somebody's on the streets and they need those resources immediately. I'm the biggest advocate and I tell Dr. Sharon this all the time. We need access in life. We don't need it two weeks from now. We don't need it when a referral has to be sent in four days from now. We don't need that. We need some stuff that's going to be live. You ain't got to do none of that stuff because you guys know like I know, the window opens and it closes really fast. Really fast. And we can't be sitting around waiting on time. That brings on burnout and frustration, right? I think everybody that's on the streets doing this type of work do it for a reason because they love to do the work. And what I hear most outreach workers and FSPs talk about all the time privately is the resources in this broken system. That's what they talk about the most. They never really too much talking about the clients. It's the hoops they got to jump through. I started off as Sharp, my career as Sharp. I started out as sharp as a janitor. As a matter of fact, I wasn't even a janitor. They gave me a temporary job for two weeks. I think I told you the story, Miss Hood. I said, that's why I'm smiling. Like, that's where the story came from. <laughs> I, I started off as a, as a, um, I had a temporary job there for two weeks. And um, for the first month and a half, when I was at Sharp, I just showed up to work every day, just cleaned up their offices until they gave me a job. So they gave me a job as a janitor. When I went to the HR, the HR told me, what do you want to be? I said, I want to be a case manager. I said, you're too stupid to be a case manager. Right? So I went on to be a case manager. Stayed there seven years. Left is one of their best case managers. 
I know Dr. Barber, Dr. Floyd. Right? So that's how my career started. In social services. But that lady told me I was too stupid to be a case manager. I had a support team around me. If I would have let her tell me no, I'd still be a janitor. So I don't tell my clients no. I'm not the gatekeeper to their life. We are not the gatekeepers to somebody's determinants. And once you find yourself being a gatekeeper to people's determinants, you're probably in their way. You're probably in their way, right? So that's what, I, I, I just don't do that. And you will hear Dr. Sharon said all the time when he first starts speaking, our system is broken. <laughs> He'll say it. Yeah, he does. It's, it's no secret. It's not no big DMA secret that the system is broke. But I do believe in his vision. I really, really do. I believe he came to the Department of Mental Health to change the dynamics of the services that we are going to be delivering. And the services that have been delivered for the last 20 years, 25 years, hasn't worked. So he's trying to do something different. And I like his theory. He thinks from the bottom up. It starts on the ground. It starts on the ground with us. It starts on the ground with us. We have to be on the ground identifying these people. We can't be walking over these people and say, hey, I'll help you. We can't be walking up to these people and say, get out my face. You refuse services. See you later. And they die. We can't do that anymore. That hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. We can't put somebody on a 5150 hold and don't go to the hospital to check on them. We can't say the client went to jail and not call the jail liaisons to check on them to make sure they get mental health services. We can't just put in a referral and hope that this stuff happens. Because it hasn't happened in 25 years. And if you think it's going to happen, maybe something wrong with you. Because <laughs> it hasn't happened. So I believe in this philosophy about caring about people, the whole person, not just their substance abuse, not just their mental health, but the whole person. How do we build community around that person? How do we get that person's family involved? How do we do that? That's our number one priority. Because people are going to give you guys the clients that nobody wants. Social services don't even want them. The jails don't want them. The IMDs don't want them. The psych ERs don't want them. They're giving them to you. Nobody wants them. Nobody wants them. So they're giving them to you. 
So you have to be creative. Can't be complacent. And you have to push this system to change. And we do it one client at a time. Just one client at a time. And if you're not getting the answer you're looking for, keep climbing. I do. I do. I, I, I don't call Adam Schiff's office. Straight up. Straight up. And I have a profound belief that everybody in this room and every social worker I meet in L.A. County came to work to help. And you have to prove me different. But when you do, I'm going around you. I am going straight around you, straight around you, and you'll never see me again. But if I run into you, I'm going to remember you. And I'm not coming to you. I like to work with people that think alike, not people that set up barriers. And if you run across people that are setting up barriers, go around them. Go around them. Why not? If you run across people that are rigid in their thinking, go around them. Because that client is dependent on you to do that. You're their voice. They've been told no their whole life. You can't go back to them and tell them no. And think you're going to have a relationship with them. That just don't work like that. At least I don't think so. Hi, Elizabeth Javier. That's my partner back there, Elizabeth. Yeah, so, so me and Elizabeth, we go around the whole county, and we're trying to identify these people. We're trying to identify these people in CES meetings, CES coordination meetings. We want to know who are they and where they're at. That's it. That's all. And who's working with them? And how can we assist? How can we be of help? That's it. That's all. And I think that's the mindset we come to work with every day. And I know all of you guys come to work with that same mindset. And sometimes we need different training. No lie. We need safety training. How do we engage this person that's laying on the ground? I don't engage them from the feet. I engage them from the head. I engage them from the head. Because if I engage them from the head and they get up, they got to get up and come back towards me. Uh, nobody's going to just pop up in my face. I engage them from the head, from the side. And when me and Elizabeth engage people, we give them outs. They're not going to run into the streets. They're going to run down the curb if they want to talk to us. And we give them space. We don't stand right in front of their face. We don't stand in a V and give them this. Here's your out. If you don't want to talk to us, you can walk down the street. You're not going to walk in the traffic. We're going to let you walk down the curb. And we're not going to chase you. We're not going to chase you. We'll see you later. Because I don't believe in chasing people down the street trying to get their name and, hey, come back, come back. I don't, I don't do that to people. People don't want to talk to you, that's fine. Because people are not psychotic 24-7. If you find yourself 
going to see the same client at the same time and you're getting the same results, you might want to switch up the time. Who's the insane one? Right? So we do a lot of that. If we're talking to a client in the morning, we'll switch it up and go in the afternoon just to see what that client is like in the afternoon. We switch it up all the time because we're trying to find out what's going on. I don't need a glimpse of the client. I need the whole picture because my assessment has to be right because now we're talking about housing you. Now we're talking about appropriate housing. I'm not going to house you in a scattered site knowing that you're psychotic and not on medication and everything else. I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to set you up to get evicted and can't get another Section 8 voucher for three years just to satisfy the program's needs. You hear a lot of that, housing, 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 but you hear very few people say appropriate housing. What is appropriate housing for this client? Is it high level of care? Is it supportive housing with FSP services? Uh, and a bunch of other services wrapped around them. Because FSP can't do it all either. They need a village. Right? What does that look like to give that client the most success in housing? And not only when we get them into housing, what's their purpose? What is it they didn't like to do? What is it? Because there's no need in housing a person if you're not going to give them a purpose. I need a purpose in my life. It can't just be filled up with groups. It just can't be filled up with substance abuse programs and groups and mental health. Give me something else to do. The whole person, the whole person. It'll be in her drive around 24 hours a day. We start off every morning. So me and her, for instance, our schedule starts at 6.30. We're having coffee at 5.30 in the morning. Because we do an hour of planning before we even start our day. <coughs> an hour of planning before we even start our day. Then we go into the staff meetings. That's how me and her get out. That's just our commitment to this thing. It's our commitment. She knows what I'm thinking. I know what she's thinking all the time. Because the team supports each other. She knows when I'm burnt out. I know when she's burnt out. Supervisors may not know. The team supports the team. And a supervisor loves a team that can jail and get along and do the work. And sometimes she might have a plan that I don't agree with, and I might have a plan that she don't agree with. But we realize we got two plans. Who's going to let go of their ego and do plan A? and support the other person with their plan. They give them the best opportunity for their plan to work out, even though you may not know it's not going to work out. 
then you go to your plan. That's how you build team. That's how we build team. You got your plan, your client's plan, and your partner's plan. Client's plan is always first. Always first. Then it's maybe your partner's plan and your plan, and then all three of y'all sit down and come up with a better plan. This didn't work, this didn't work, and your plan didn't work neither. But we found some positives in the plans. Let's concentrate on those. Because the client is part of the team, too. It's not the most important member of the team. That's how we build strong relationships with people that last for years. Because when something happens in housing, who is that client going to let through the door? Who on your team that client is going to let through that door? Got to have some trust with somebody. When they're in a crisis and somebody knocks on that door, they're going to let who they going to let in the door? Because if they don't let nobody in the door, we got a problem. I love peers. I love mental health workers. I love LCSWs. I love them all. And I let the client pick. The client picks who's going to work with them, not us. There's four people standing there. The client usually picks somebody. They usually focus in on one person. Maybe negative or positive. If it's negative, it ain't going to be you. <laughs> Sorry, supervisor, can't be you. It might be the peer with the least experience. So how does the team support that peer? Right? That's a lot of this stuff. A lot of, this is all of the things I picked up over the years as just doing this work. And to be honest with you, I'm not an expert. The clients I work with were the experts, and I just got to follow them. I just got to follow them. Most people want you to believe in them. I don't care how sane they are or how insane they are. They want you to believe in them. Believe in them. <coughs> believe in them. So I got to go. Oh, 10 minutes. Yeah, believe in them. Because if you don't believe in them, they're not going to believe in you. <laughs> so when you meet people that have been homeless 20, 25 years, I like working with people. The longest person I've worked with was homeless 40 years. Right? I love working with those type of people. Love it. Because when they start talking to you, that means they're ready. That means they trust you. That means over 25 years, they haven't found anybody they trust, but they trust you. And you need to take that really serious. Because you're going to be the last person they trust. What do you do? What do they ask you for? Do that. Do that. They come up to you and they're asking you for something. Do that. And that's another thing, you guys. 
when you're looking at a human being, what, are, what you're also looking at is their parents and their grandparents. That's what you're looking at. So you got to know a little bit about American history. Got to know a little bit about American history because that's what you're looking at. I met a client in New York, born in the 50s, 40s, 50s. I don't know when he was born. No birth certificate, no social, too psychotic to even know it, right? He knew what elementary school he went to. Got the elementary school book. Found him up in there. Got his name. Once we got his name, we went to all the clinics in the area. Got his medical records. Once we got his medical records, we can go into Social Security. Get his real name and social. But you got to be super creative. <laughs> super creative. Think out the box. Oh, I think we just housed this guy. Last year took four years. It took four years. And it took a bunch of us to do it. So I'm an outreach worker. I outreach everybody. I know the CES coordinator by name. Go up in the office, take them fried chicken and whatever they like to eat. I do that. I outreach everybody, not just clients. I outreach the whole system. That's another thing, you guys. Please know the system that you're working in. Yeah, right. Please know. Yeah, it, it, please just know the system. Know who the matches are. You have to advocate for your client. If you don't know these people, you should really know these people. Because, let me say this, stuff is always coming down the line new. Social service is coming every six months. Something always new. And you ain't going to know about it unless you know that person. All right, thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.